Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you all tonight, and we'll go ahead and get started tonight. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, and we left off last week. We finished verse 42, so we'll pick up in verse 43 tonight and then make our way into chapter 13 as well. But we'll start reading in verse 38 just for context, but we'll pick up our uh, teaching at verse 43. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with his generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that these words would be true of us. Lord, that we would be the brother, the sister, the mother of Christ, that we would be related to him in this spiritual way, and Lord, also to one another. Lord, help us to see that your kingdom must be primary in our life. Lord, the spiritual must take precedent over everything. Lord, even above our physical relations. Lord, that we would uh, have this mind within us. Lord, to love you and to love your word and to love your people uh, in this way. So Lord, we pray that you teach us tonight. Lord, that we would uh, have true faith, Lord, that we would not be like this evil generation that Jesus is addressing, uh, who uh, have heard the word of God and yet who failed to believe. So, Lord, we, may we have true faith and, Lord, live a godly life and follow, uh, Lord, your commandments. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so here in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus has been dealing with this pretty lengthy controversy with the scribes and Pharisees. And here they had demanded a sign from him, as if he did no signs, as if he didn't do so many miracles that even in the book of John it says that there's not enough books in the whole world to contain all the things that Jesus said and all the things that he did. So there was plenty of evidence for the fact that he was the Christ and they needed nothing else, uh, yet they were demanding a sign because of their unrepentant evil heart. Right? That was their problem, not lack of evidence, but unbelief. Unbelief in their heart they were an adulterous, evil generation, and they craved a sign. And yet Jesus told them they're not going to be given a sign. He's not going to jump through hoops to accommodate the sins, the whims, the wishes of these evil, adulterous people, other than the sign of Jonah the prophet, which is his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. He will die, and then he will rise again. This they will see, uh, but he will give them no other sign. Then he proceeded to tell them that the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south will rise up and condemn this generation because in these two instances, you have Gentiles who had lesser teachers, lesser preachers, uh, lesser wisdom than what this generation has. The men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah and Jesus is a greater preacher than Jonah. He's the one that Jonah preached about and he's the one that's there among these people and yet they refuse to repent and believe. The queen of the south also will rise up because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And Solomon derived his wisdom from Christ. And now the source of Solomon's wisdom is here. 
They don't even have to travel to the ends of the earth. He's coming to their villages, and yet they refuse to believe him. They refuse to repent and believe. And also, Solomon did not do the many miracles like Jesus did. And yet they have all of this, and so they do not repent. Now, verses 43 through 45, he's going to describe what this generation is like, right? What it is like for a person, and this is true not only of the generation and of the people generally, but also individually, right? And it would also be applicable to people today. Those who have access to the Word of God, who have some temporary relief from the world, right? They have some enlightenment momentarily, but then eventually they turn away from it, and it doesn't benefit them what are they like, right? What are these kinds of people like? And he shows that the later state is worse than the first, that it would be better for them to have never heard of Christ, for him to have never come to their villages, than for him to come there and them not believe his words, right? And the same would be true of us. It would be better for us not to be at Bible study tonight than for us to be here and not believe, not believe, right? That is the key. Now, the best is to be here, to hear the word of God and believe it and obey it. That is the ultimate place that we want to be at, and yet here they fail to meet this expectation. Verse 43, he says, now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Here, an unclean spirit that is inhabiting a man, right, when it goes out of that man, it passes through, he says, waterless places seeking rest, seeking rest, seeking someone to torment, seeking someone to bother, seeking some habitation in order for it to dwell there, and it does not find it. And this evil spirit says that it would be better for me to go back from where I came than to go around homeless like this, right? Go around wandering here and there without an abode, without a dwelling place. So he's going to return back to this man from which he came. And when he comes, he finds the man unoccupied, swept and put in order, right? This man who before was tormented by this demon and say he lived a profane life, say he was like the demoniac who was out there amongst the tombs, who was cutting himself, who was howling out in his miseries, crying out day and night, running around naked in this kind of a way. That's what he was like when the demon inhabited him. Then the demon leaves him, and the man gets some civility to him. Right now, he's not out in the uh, tombs, but he's living in a house. He's Maybe he's married. He has a few children. He has some morality to him. He's not going out and getting drunk at night. He's not doing drugs like he used to. Maybe he cleaned up his language a little bit. So he's his life is more put in order. There's more stability, right? There's a little more morality. He's not doing those kinds of profane things. But he finds it unoccupied, meaning the man is not occupied with the Spirit of God, right? right? He's not a true convert. He's not a true believer, He's a temporary believer. He's one who has some temporary influence from the Bible, from the church, from the things of God, right? It gives him a momentary relief, a temporary benefit, but it's not sustained because he does not have true conversion. The spirit is not there. Well, what does that demon do? He takes along seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and then they go and live there. He goes, and not only does he go back in him, but he takes seven other spirits that are worse than itself, and they go and live there, and then the last state is worse than the first. Now he is twice as much a son of hell as he used to be. Now he's possessed not by one demon, but he has eight demons within him, and his later state is worse than his previous state. Now what is the comparison? That is the way it also will be with this evil generation. The comparison is this generation, the generation that Jesus is talking to, this is the way that they are, right? For them, the relief, the respite that took place is the coming of Christ. When Christ came and was among them, when he was going into their villages, into their synagogues, preaching and teaching the word of God, the people were, had some interest in this, 
They were coming out to hear him. He was performing these miracles. They were talking about these things. There was a temporary interest in the things of God, but they did not have the true reality, right? It was only for a moment. And then ultimately, what did most of the people do with Christ? They walked away from him, right? They rejected him. They didn't want anything to do with him. And now the later state is worse than the previous state, right? This is what Jesus is saying. Because now they have rejected greater revelation. They've had more light, more knowledge, more understanding, more evidence of the reality that Jesus is the Christ and that they should believe in him, repent of their sins, right? They have a greater confirmation of this and yet they have walked away from it. So they are in a worse state afterwards than they are in, the, in their previous or their prior state. A couple of passages. First, John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And there are many passages that we could look at that evidence this. This temporary conversion or a temporary, not conversion, but uh, temporary faith. False faith that only lasts for a moment. John five thirty three to 35 says, you have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. They were willing to rejoice in John, but for how long? For just a little bit, right? Temporarily, they rejoiced in John. But eventually, they grew weary of John. They grew weary of him. They didn't like what he was doing, and they walked away from him, and they rejected his ministry and the things that he was saying. Also, while we're here, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 59. John 6, 59. says, These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you are to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. There, it's many of his disciples. They were grumbling at what Jesus was saying. And then it says in verse 66 that as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Right, they, are, they, they were with him for a moment, and while they were with him, there was a temporary reformation in their life. But then when they walk away from him, what do you think they're going to go back to? They're going to go back to their old ways, but they're also going to go back in even greater ways. Right, Their sin is going to be even more magnified than it was before. It would have been better for them to have not known the way of truth than to turn away from it. This is what is happening, and that's our next passage. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. 2 Peter 2, verse 20. says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... They are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Here, he says, they escape the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They escape temporarily, right? Temporarily, because they come to some knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? Some mental knowledge, some mental assent 
to these truths, but then they are later entangled in them and overcome again, right? They get entangled again. The last state, he says, is worse than the first because now they've walked away from the faith. Now they are apostates that have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have greater knowledge, so they're going to have a greater judgment on the day of judgment. That's why he says it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment. It would be better for them to have lived in a pagan land and never known the gospel than for them to have heard it, to have some temporary faith in it, and then ultimately to walk away because it's going to be greater for them on the day of judgment. And then he quotes this proverb, the dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. The dog has a stomach ailment. He expels the vomit. He has temporary relief. And then he ingests it back into his body. The sow is filthy. She's washed. And then she goes back to the filth and the mud. And that's what these temporary false converts do. They have a temporary reformation, but it's not lasting. There's no endurance, no perseverance in them. And then they go back and it's worse than the first state. And that's what this whole generation is like that Jesus is dealing with. This is what generally speaking the people are like. Not all of them. There were some exceptions to this, but as the general rule, this is what was true of the people during Jesus' day. Right? This is what was true amongst the Jewish people. Verse 46. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Here, while he's still speaking to the crowds, right? In the midst of this, while he's speaking, and he's not talking about politics. He's not talking about gardening. He's not talking about any of these types of things. He's preaching the gospel, right? He's preaching the word of God. So while he's doing this, his family, his mother and brothers are outside wanting to speak to him, right? They've come and they want to have an audience with Jesus. And if we go over to Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3, this is the parallel passage here. We'll see here that they're not coming innocently. They're not coming uh, because they just want to see how he's doing, check in on him, right? They're not doing it in that way. But they're coming because they think he's lost his mind and they're wanting to take him back home. Mark chapter 3, verse 20, it says, And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, this is his family, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. His own people is his family, right? And I take this to be because he, in this context, if you read on in Mark, he's talking about the same things that he's talking about in Mark chapter 12, that this is the parallel incident in the gospel of Mark. And there Mark tells us that the reason they're there to talk to him is to try to convince him to come back home because they think that he's lost his mind. They think that he is out of his mind. And we know that his brothers at this point are not believers. Now, Mary is a believer, and if she is a part of this, however this all came about, then it would be temporary unbelief in her. It would be a sin for her to do this, and then the brothers are unbelievers at this time, and they become believers at least by Acts chapter 1, right? Acts chapter 1. Okay, so this isn't innocent, but rather there is a motive behind this, okay? And it's also in the middle of his teaching, and that is what is primarily on his mind. So, of course, Jesus isn't saying there's not a place to talk to your mother and your brothers in the right context, in the right setting. That's not what he's dealing with here. But what is primary is the spiritual, the spiritual. And when he's teaching the Bible, is not the time to be talking to his mother and brothers, right? He's in the middle of doing what he's been called to do, and that is to preach the word of God. There is a time to talk to them, but now is not the time, 
right? That's why he rebuffs them and also for the reason that they're coming because they think that he's lost his mind. He's pushing back against that and rebuking them in this situation. So someone uh, notifies him that the mother and brothers want to talk to him. And then Jesus answers and said, well, then who is my mother and who are my brothers? Jesus is going to use this as an opportunity to teach, to teach. And even here we see that his physical relations did not receive an automatic pass into heaven. Even Jesus's family was not guaranteed entrance into the kingdom of God. Only if his physical relations became his spiritual relations. That is the only way that they can enter the kingdom of God. Mary did not get access into heaven because she was the physical mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. She gained access because she is a believer. She believed in him. She had faith in him for the forgiveness of her sins. She was not co-redeemer with him like the Roman Catholics teach. We should not pray to her. We shouldn't do any of those types of things. She had to be redeemed just like everyone else. And that is through repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. She had to come to that understanding and realization that her son, according to the flesh, was her Lord according to his divinity. And that she was his slave, right? She was under submission to Jesus Christ. So his physical relations did not get this automatic place into heaven, but they must have true faith. And here Jesus is showing us that the spiritual must be primary, must be primary. Now, again, of course, there is a place for us to care for, to love our physical relations, right? We should do that, but not above the spiritual. And if the physical is detracting from the spiritual, then what do we have to say to the physical? We have to say goodbye. Yes, we have to say, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? Those who do the will of God. That has to be primary, not the physical, but rather the spiritual. And that's what Jesus says here to his own disciples. His disciples are his mother and his brothers. Whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. These are my true relations, those who are of spiritual and this is the way that, that we have to be in the church as well. The church must be our primary relation in this earth. In terms of human relationships, those of the household of faith must be primary, must be primary, even above our own physical relationships. Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, verse 28. Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. There they have left house, wife, brothers, parents, children for the sake of the kingdom of God. And they will receive many times as much in this time, meaning in this life. Well, how do they receive new brothers, parents, children in this life? Through faith, through faith in the church, in the church. The older women become a mother to him. The older men become a father to him. His peers, those who are the same age, become his brothers. Those women his age are his sisters. The little ones are his own children in terms of faith. In terms of faith, in terms of the spiritual, then this is how they gain them. And then also in the kingdom of God. We'll have these relations in the kingdom of God as well. Okay, Matthew chapter 13. It says, That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. 
Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they can scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Here, this is one of the most well-known of all of the parables of Christ and is given in order to explain why it is that there is such a variety of people who hear the word of God in the various responses, right? To explain what is going on. Why it is that so many people hear the word of God and yet it only produces fruit in some, right? Why is this? And this is because people are like different types of soils, right? They are, the word of God falls on different kinds of hearts and depending on what the heart is like, it determines what the seed produces, whether it produces good fruit or whether it produces no fruit at all. And this is why these things are happening. So he's giving this as a way of explaining what is taking place in regards to the ministry, in regards to why there are so few people who are receiving his word, explaining the nature of the kingdom of God. And this is what he's doing to the crowds. He's speaking to them in these parables. So it says, he spoke many things to them in parables. And this chapter has many such parables, right? The parable and then the explanation. So this chapter is... Uh, filled with many of those parables that are describing the nature of the kingdom of God and why it is advancing and progressing the way that it does. Here in verses 1 through 9, you have the actual parable, right? You have uh, the parable that is given. Now, I will say that many people uh, will justify using slick illustrations, slick illustrations, storytelling in their sermons. Have you ever heard these uh, kinds of sermon storytelling art where they get up and they'll pontificate about uh, their hobbies, all the things that they know in life, what their dog did, what their children did, what they ate for dinner last night, right? People like to do this and they wow the crowd with all this uh, information that's useless and that's pretty much the whole sermon, right? That's the sermon and they'll give a verse and an invitation and a hundred people get saved. So this is the way it goes in many churches. Yeah, that's right. And don't, don't question it. It's all good and legitimate. This is what happens in many churches and they'll use parables as the justification for using these kinds of elaborate storytelling and illustrations in their sermons, right? Jesus used parables, so it's okay for us to do that. But here, the parables of Christ are not the equivalent to modern day illustrations that are being used in the pulpit today. And so we should not use it in that way. Okay, the parable itself is describing this man who goes out and sows seed. And the seed falls on four different types of soil. The first one falls on the road, and there the birds come and eat the seed so that it does not uh, sprout, it does not bear any fruit, 
it is immediately taken away and it is of no benefit to the sower at all. Then the other falls on a rocky place where there is not much soil, there's a little bit. There it springs up momentarily, but because there's no root, it withers away when the sun comes up and it dies and it doesn't produce any fruit. Then the third one is there amongst the thorns and it comes up and the thorns then choke it out and it also bears no fruit. And then the other falls on good soil and it yields a crop that is useful to the sower. Some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30, right? This is what happens there. And then he says, he who has ears, let him hear. And the ears he's talking about are spiritual ears. Let them hear spiritually. You have to understand these things in a spiritual way. Now, the contrast here between the soils is that if you're looking at the three versus the one, right, the commonality in the three is that none of them produced any fruit. That there's no fruit produced in the three. Though it takes a different path in all of them, the one was taken away immediately. The other two, there is something temporarily, but it doesn't have any endurance. It does not produce any long-lasting, stable fruit. That's the difference between the good soil and the other three. Now, I point this out because when I was growing up, we were taught in the church by one of our former pastors that in the parable of the soils, there are three that are Christians and one that's an un, is an unbeliever. Only the one on the road is an unbeliever. Then the two, the rocky and the thorny, are nominal Christians. They're true Christians and they're going to make it to heaven. They're just not going to get any rewards. And then the fourth one, the good soil, is a true believer and or a believer, but one who's really interested and serious about the things of God. And he comes to church all the time, reads his Bible, he evangelizes, and he's going to get rewards in heaven. So... You can be any of those three, and you're going to make it to heaven, uh, and, but you'll get more rewards if you're the fourth one. So the fourth is the best, but don't worry. If you're two or three, you're still going to make it, okay? <laughs> There's a horrible interpretation. There's no way that you can interpret it that way. But I say that because these types of spurious interpretations exist. They're evil. They're false. And it leads to great sin great sin and people not taking the things of God seriously. Because most people in this life, if you say, well, you're still going to make it. You're just not going to get any rewards. What will most people say in the moment of sin? Well, okay, who cares, right? You know, that's not a big deal. At least I'm not going to hell. I'm still going to make it and it's still going to be great. So I don't have anything to worry about. And this is what they do. It justifies this. And the reason they have to do this is to justify their false converts. Why it is that 99% of their converts walk away and you never see them again. And so they have to make them into Christians, right? But just nominal Christians, uh, backslidden Christians, Christians that bear no fruit. But a Christian that bears no fruit is a contradiction. It's a, contra a biblical contradiction. It does not exist. So we should not put our hope in these kinds of false, dangerous interpretations of the Bible. Okay? <clears throat> okay, now verse 10. Had anyone else heard that interpretation before? Okay, all right, we got some nods here. Good. Verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Here, the, disciple, the disciples are asking him this question. All right, why are you speaking in parables? Why are you telling these parables? to the crowds, right? Why are you doing it in this way? Now, another side point I forgot to make, but I will now, is there was another time that I was at a meeting, a uh, pastor's meeting, and the pastor preached from Matthew chapter 13, the very passage that we're looking at tonight. And he preached verses one through nine, then he skipped verses 10 to 17 and preached verses 18 to 23, 18 to 23. Now. Can anyone tell me why he skipped verses 10 to 17? <laughs> election, yes, because 10 to 17 is teaching the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God in salvation. And that didn't fit his agenda. But 10 to 17 is the key to the whole passage. You can't understand the passage without understanding the explanation of 10 to 17. So this is the most important part. That's why it's in the middle. Right? So that it will be the focus 
of attention, and he skipped over it, and and you know, said, "Oh, you'll just go figure that out on your on your own, basically." Instead of giving the people any interpretation of it, right? Again, this is what people do. They jump over what doesn't fit their own agenda. Instead of taking the Bible seriously and seeking to understand it, they just will say whatever will accommodate the crowd. And we can't be like that. So we will not skip 10 to 17 tonight. Okay, so the disciples want to know, why do you speak to them in parables? Now, many people would say, oh, it's so that it makes it easier for people to understand. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. He told parables so that his message would be easy to understand, so it would be more accessible. But is that why Jesus spoke in parables? Well, notice verse 11. Jesus answered to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus speaks in parables in order to make a distinction between the sheep and the goats, between the true disciple and between the false disciple. He says, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Here, these parables are mysteries. They are riddles. Things that people cannot understand without the Spirit of God. Without coming and seeking more wisdom, more understanding. Like it says in James chapter 1, if any of you likes wisdom, let him ask God who gives graciously without reproach. But most of the people hear these things and they go, what's this guy talking about? We have no idea what he's talking about. And they leave and they don't seek after more wisdom. But here... The disciples are seeking more wisdom. They're coming to him asking, what does this mean? Why are you speaking like this? Help us understand what it is you are saying. And Jesus points out to you, it has been granted. Granted by whom? Granted by the Father. Granted by the Father. As it says in Matthew 16, 17. When Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you but my father revealed it to you it has been granted to you by the father to know to understand to believe these truths or as it says in acts chapter eleven eighteen, then to the gentiles has a repentance that leads to life to the gentiles has been granted repentance that leads to life to the gentiles granted by god granted by god So to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. These are mysteries. Mysteries because natural men cannot comprehend them. A natural man cannot understand them. This is why the Bible is called a mystery. Not that it isn't known. Not that it isn't accessible. It's right here before us. It's a mystery because... A natural man cannot understand it unless the Spirit opens his eyes. It takes spiritual light and knowledge to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And he's speaking to them in parables because it hasn't been granted to them, but it has been granted to the disciples. Romans 16, verses 25 and 26. Romans 16, 25 says now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of jesus christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret for long ages past but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the command of the eternal god has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith there it is called the gospel is called a mystery a mystery Kept secret for long ages, right? Not secret from everyone. It wasn't a secret to Abraham. It wasn't a secret to Isaac and Jacob. It wasn't a secret to Moses, to David. They knew of it, but it was kept a secret from the nations and is also kept a secret from unbelievers because they cannot see the glory of Christ unless it is revealed to them. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 
6. Second Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 says, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Here the apostle says that he speaks God's wisdom in a mystery. It's a mystery. It's hidden, hidden from unbelievers because they do not have eyes to see. The natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. So in this way, it is a mystery from, from them. And that's why he says in verse 11, to them it has not been granted. The Father has not granted them repentance that leads to life, and he has not granted them spiritual eyes, spiritual ears, a spiritual heart that can understand. He has not given faith to those people. This would be the same as John chapter 10. John chapter 10 and verse 20, 22. John 10, 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now we'll stop there. Is he not telling them plainly? Has he not told them plainly many, many, many times? He's manifested it many times. And yet, what are they saying? It's unclear to us, right? It's unclear. This is what people will often say. They'll say, well, that's not clear. Well, it's clear to me. It was clear enough from Jesus. It was clear to the disciples. Why is it not clear to you? Why do you not understand it, right? That's the problem. Again, they're saying it, there's lack of evidence, but there's not lack of evidence. The problem is their own unbelief. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You don't believe because you are not of my sheep. Now, of those two, which is the cause of the other? Which one comes first? You are not my sheep, and because you are not my sheep, you do not believe. He's not saying, because you don't believe, then you're not my sheep. Right. But rather, the fact that you are not one of my sheep, that's election, means that you do not believe. Right? That goes back to granted. Right? To granted. A free willer has to deny this verse. Because they have to say the reason people are not sheep is because they don't use their free will. It's because of their lack of faith, their lack of believing, that causes them not to be one of his sheep. But that's not what Jesus says. They have to turn it backwards, right? Everything's upside down with them because they're upside down. Okay, so here it is not granted to them. Verse 12, whoever has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Whoever has faith, whoever has understanding, true understanding, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. This is the disciples. They already have faith in Christ. They already have understanding, but now they're having more understanding. They're coming to him, and he's teaching them more, and they're gaining and growing in their knowledge and understanding of Christ, of his will. So they already have, now they have more, and they're going to have an abundance. But the one who does not have, even what he has is taken away from him. The one who does not have true faith and understanding, even the word of God that he hears, it doesn't benefit him. It's taken away from him. It does not lead to any good fruit. He loses even that which he is given. This is like the three bad soils, right? Even what they have is ultimately taken away from them, and it does not benefit. Verse 13, Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. The parables manifest the hard heart of the people. This is what they do. He speaks to them in these riddles, 
because of their unbelief. Because seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. They see Jesus visibly, physically, but they don't see him spiritually. They hear him audibly, but they do not hear him spiritually. They don't understand. They don't have true faith. John 9, verse 40. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. You say that you see, but you don't really see. You don't really understand. And now you are in even greater sin. Even greater sin than you were before. Then verses 14 and 15. He's going to go back to the prophet Isaiah to prove this reality. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand, and keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they have scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their ears and hear with their ears. They would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Here he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, this is when God called Isaiah and commissioned him to be a prophet. When he saw the Lord high and exalted, which the Gospel of John tells us that when Isaiah saw the Lord, high and exalted, who did he see? He saw Christ. He saw the glory of Christ. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Isaiah 6, verse 8. This passage gives the explanation of why it is that the people do not see and do not understand. What is the ultimate purpose of God in the unbelief of the people? Right. We would think, this is contrary to what God wants. This is a surprise to God. It's catching him off guard. He sends Jesus... He's preaching to everyone. God wants everyone to be saved. This is what many people believe. But but they won't let him, right? Why is it that there's so much unbelief there? But does the unbelief of the people, is this contrary to the purpose of God? Is it catching God off guard? Is it it outside of his will? And of course not. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people. Now, think about this. Talk about an upbeat message here, right? Go and tell this people this. This is what I'm sending you to tell the people. How many people are going to be excited to hear this message? And yet this is what God told Isaiah to say. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? Or, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, The holy seed is its stump. So Isaiah's commission is to go and render the people's hearts hard. They're already hard, but you go and make them harder. You go and make them even harder by preaching the word of God, and they're not going to listen. They're not going to repent. They're not going to believe what he says. So he's sending him to preach with the purpose of preparing the people for judgment. And how long is he going to do it? Until the land is without inhabitants. Until God brings judgment upon them. So he's sending him to prepare the people for the judgment of God. To fill up the measure of their sins. Well, isn't that what Jesus is doing here? He's preaching to them and they're filling up the measure of their sins. This is why he's speaking to them in this way. Verse 16. But now the disciples. But blessed are your eyes because they see. In your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Here, 
Their eyes and their ears are blessed, are blessed. Their physical eyes are blessed because they have spiritual eyes. Their physical ears are blessed because they have spiritual ears, right? They are in a unique place, in a very blessed place. Is it a great blessing to live during the time in which Jesus Christ was on the earth? Isn't it a great blessing to live in the region where he did his ministry? Isn't it a great blessing to be one of his disciples and to hear him teach, to see him each and every day, to see the miracles and to hear the gracious words that come out of his mouth? This is a great blessing that their eyes have and that their ears have. And the reason it is a blessing is because of faith. They believe, right? They have true spiritual eyes and spiritual ears. And as a result, their physical eyes and physical ears are blessed. And then he says, I say, many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it. And hear it you hear and did not hear it. The righteous men and women in the Old Testament and the holy prophets of God in the Old Testament, they wanted to see what the disciples saw, but they did not live to see it. They wanted to hear what the disciples heard, but they did not live to hear it. Meaning, what all of the prophets and all of the righteous men of the Old Testament wanted was to be one of his disciples. To be on the earth when Jesus Christ was here in the flesh, when he was incarnate, and to sit and hear him teach. To see him with their own eyes and to hear him with their own ears. That's what he means. They desired to see it, but they didn't see it. They died before he was born. They wanted to hear it, but they didn't hear it because they died before the Christ came into the world. Now, for them to long for this means that they had to know about what? About Christ. They had to know about Christ. They had to know that he was coming into the world. Otherwise, what are they longing for? What do they want to see and what do they want to hear? So they knew that he was coming into the world and they wanted to live during that generation when Christ was on the earth and to be one of his disciples. But they died before those things came about. This is Hebrews chapter 11. They saw it in a sense by faith, but they didn't see it with their own eyes. They heard it in a sense by faith, but they didn't hear it with their physical ears. They had to see it and greet it from afar, from a distance. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They all died in faith. They did not live to see the promise. But they did see them, and they did welcome them from a distance. Because they were by faith able to look and see what God was going to do. As it says in Genesis 22, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Well, Abraham didn't live long enough to see Christ come into the world and to see him down on the cross. But he did by faith, in what was typified in Isaac and in the realm, he did see and understand that God would send Christ into the world to die on the cross for his sins. And he saw that and he greeted it from a distance, right? From uh, many, many, uh, over a thousand years before. He saw it, he greeted it 1,800 years before it actually happened. This is as it says in John chapter 8, concerning Abraham. John chapter 8 In verse 56, John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Christ. And what is the day of Christ? But the day of his resurrection. His resurrection. He saw it and was glad. Well, how did he see it? He saw it by faith. He saw it from afar, from a distance, by faith. But he didn't see it with his own eyes. He died before Christ came into the world. Yet he did see it by faith. Then the overlap in the, between the old and the new, an example would be Luke chapter 2, 21 to 35. Simeon. Simeon, the prophet, 
is an example of a righteous man who lived to see the Lord's Christ, right? He had been promised by God that he would not see death until he saw with his own eyes the Lord's Christ, right? That he would be born. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. When the eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him uh, by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. My eyes have seen your salvation. I've seen it with my own two physical eyes. He already had seen it by faith, and now he's seeing it with his own eyes. So those who have the spiritual, then the physical is blessed as well. That's what Jesus means when he says that his disciples are blessed. Then verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. Here is the interpretation, right? The interpretation, the sower is the Lord. The seed is the word of God, the word of the kingdom. And then the soils represent different types of people. The, sow, the uh, seed sown on the road is one who hears the word, and immediately the evil one snatches away what was sown in his heart. And so it produces no fruit. It's immediately taken away. These are those who hear the gospel and they have no interest. No interest at all. And aren't there many people like that? They have no care. They have no care concern. It's in one ear and out the other. They can't get away fast enough. They don't want to talk about it. They don't care about these things. They don't think about it. They don't meditate on it. They don't ponder it. It doesn't cause them any consternation at all. And there are many people like this. An example would be uh, in Acts chapter 17, verse 32, when the Apostle Paul is there in Athens preaching. There are some people, when they heard him preach, some of them scoffed. They mocked. They said, this guy's crazy, right? He's out of his mind. And then they walk away. They have no interest. No interest at all. And this is how many... <coughs> Many people are when they hear the word of God. Then 20 to 21. The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So here there is a momentary, initially he hears the word and he receives it with joy. He says, oh, this is the best thing I've ever heard. This is wonderful. This is great. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven, right? I want my sins forgiven. In, in Jesus, he did it all, right? All I got to do is believe in him. This is so wonderful. He hears it. He receives it with joy. Yet, has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. Temporary faith, but no root, no endurance, no perseverance. And then affliction and persecution arises because of the word, and he falls away proving that he was never a true convert. So it's not that he was a true believer and then became an unbeliever, but he never was true. He was false from the beginning, but then he manifested that his faith was false by falling away. This is like James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. And one of the good works is perseverance, right? We have to have perseverance. We have to have endurance in the things of God. He has no perseverance. 
He's momentary, and then he falls away. And aren't there many people like this? Don't we know many people like this who have some temporary interest in the things of God? Temporary disciple. That We read that earlier from John chapter 6. They're called disciples, but then it says they no longer walk with him. Well, they weren't ever true disciples. They were false disciples from the beginning, and then eventually they manifest that when they walk away. And there are many people who are like this, and they fall away here because of persecution. Persecution arises because of the word. Well, nobody told me about this. Nobody told me that people are going to hate me for being a Christian, that they're going to make fun of me. Right? No, no one told me that I wouldn't be able to go and go to the bars anymore and go to the clubs anymore and have a good time. But now you're saying I can't do these things? And if I don't go, they're all going to laugh at me. So I don't want anything to do with it. And then they walk away. And usually what happens? The, worst, the later state is worse than the first. They become more profane, more evil, more wicked in the things that they're doing than they were even before. And there are examples of this in the Bible as well. Many examples of all of these kinds of soils in the Bible. An example would be John chapter 9. John chapter 9, verse 20 and 23. Here, in these, the parents of the blind man who was healed, though they saw and heard about what had happened, it did not produce any fruit in them because of Fear of persecution. Fear of persecution. John 9, 20. His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. And how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Put out of the synagogue. So they don't confess it, and they don't benefit from the miracle and what even happened to their own son because of fear of persecution. The whole book of Hebrews is dealing with this very issue right here, addressing people like this, telling them you better not turn away from the faith because if you do, you're proving yourself to be rocky soil. You have to overcome persecution. You cannot grow weary and you cannot fall away whenever things get tough. You have to persevere through these things. And this is why persecutions are good for us, why they're ordained by God. It, it shows, it reveals who is genuine and who is false in right. the church. Verse 22, And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world, and the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Here again, Temporarily, there is faith, but ultimately, their faith is smothered out. They're consumed with the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth. They're worldly-minded people, right? That's all they're thinking about, and they don't give their full attention to spiritual things, to spiritual things. Now, the churches are very adept at appealing to these kinds of people, right? They actually encourage this kind of false believer, right? Because you can still milk a little bit of money out of them for the most part, but telling people you know, that it's okay to be like this, but it's not okay to be like this. We cannot let this world, the things of this world, the love of money, having a good time, right, enjoying all the things in this life, choke out the spiritual, choke out faith, and that's what happens with them, right, with these people, and they produce no fruit. This would be like 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Demas, in love with this present world, has forsaken us. He was in love with the present world. And then what did he do? He abandoned the apostle. He was with him temporarily, but ultimately he manifested his true heart. And it was the deceitfulness of riches. It was this present world and enjoying all the things of this life that caused him to turn away. And this is a problem for many, many people. It can't be a problem for us, though. We have to overcome this because, again, we are talking about heaven and hell. These people go to hell. They don't go to heaven, right? They go to hell. Then the last one, verse 23, the one who was the seed sown on the good soil. This is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. This is the good soil and it bears good fruit. 
Now in some, it brings forth a hundred, some 60, some 30, according to the will of God, according to the grace of God, right? This would be like in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul of himself says that he worked harder than the rest of them, even more than the rest of the apostles. And why did he do that? Because of the grace that was given to him. So he produced much good fruit because of the grace given to him. But all of them produce good fruit. And here the good soil manifests itself by producing good fruit. The good fruit of faith. The good fruit of repentance. The good fruits of the Spirit. Love of God. Love of the church. Love of the Word. And for how long do they do this? For all of their life, right? Not for a month or two. Not for a year or two. But from their conversion until their death. And they're increasing in these things during that time. They're not regressing, they're progressing in their sanctification and in the things of God. An example of this would be 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. First Corinthians 2.13, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Here, he's grateful for the Thessalonian believers, because when they heard the word of God, they received it not as a word from men, but as the word of God. Is that good fruit? That's good fruit, right? To receive the word of God... Not as a word of men, not to nitpick it, not to be a critic over it, but to say, this is the word of God. I need to believe it, and I need to obey it. And they became imitators of the churches, of the true churches in Judea. Is that good, to imitate the true churches? Yes. And they endured suffering, and they overcame it. Is that good fruit, to endure suffering? Yes. So in this case, they are proving to be good soil, because they are producing these good fruits. Okay. We'll stop there for tonight, and then we'll pick up next week in verse 24, the tares among the wheat, another commonly misinterpreted parable.